Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Welcome to part two of the interview on Bulletproof Radio with Dave Rabin. We are going to talk about some of the things that you heard in part one in more detail, and you're going to hear about COVID and epigenetics and the effect of chronic stress on multiple generations of the species and what to do about it. You're going to learn why you should be touching yourself right now <laughs> and what that actually means. It's not what you think. <laughs> Dave, uh, welcome back to the second part of our interview. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's uh, I'm very grateful to be here. If you already heard the first part of the interview with Dave Rabin, you're already dialed in. If you're just hearing this now, you should go back and listen to the first one first. And the code that you want to know is apolloneuro.com slash Dave Asprey. Because in this episode, we're going to go deep on some of the things that the vibrational technologies or just touching different parts of your body can do. And people have had really positive comments on how they feel when they're using vibrational technologies like the Apollo Neuro in order to stimulate very specific parts of the body so that your stress response turns down. ApolloNeuro.com slash Dave Asprey to save 15%. What is the kind of breath work that is most effective for stress relief for people right now? So that's a good question. I, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I personally truly believe that I don't think there's one form of yeah. breathing that works best for everyone. I think you're right. Um, I think it's a very personal thing. It's like, and that's why meditation is so hard to learn is because we're often trying to meditate in a way that someone else tells us to do rather than seeking it on our own um, and seeking what meditation means for us. So I think part of breathing is really just doing it intentionally to start, which means focusing as much of our attention as possible on the feeling of breath coming into our nose and our mouth ideally nose over mouth, but they're both fine to start. And just focusing our attention as much as possible on that feeling of air coming in and filling our windpipe and our lungs and just being present with that feeling more than anything else and allowing that feeling to permeate our entire bodies and then holding a little bit as we finish the inhale and then releasing the breath and then repeating a little bit over and over again. I can tell you that you know that that those guidelines are are the best that work for most people because it creates some flexibility. But my to answer your question, my favorite breathing technique is uh, one that is I, I actually don't know the name of it because I speaking of finding breathing on your own, I found this on my own uh, when I was having a lot of anxiety and I realized that by breathing with, and I had a lot of trouble learning how to breathe deep breathe through my nose yeah. um, and I couldn't control airflow very well. I was a huge novice at it. And so what I realized is I like to whistle. And so I realized that if I purse my lips and we also recommend this technique to people with emphysema and COPD to help them breathe more, more freely, and I realized that if I use the same technique I recommended to my patients, which is effectively breathing through pursed lips like a whistle, but without making a sound or inhaling, imagine inhaling through a straw, mm -hmm. then you can control the airflow with your lips at, in, in the moment. And so what I would do is I would, in, I would inhale through my lips to start and I would try to make the airflow as tight as possible for like a five or 10 second inhale and then hold for two seconds and then release through my mouth with the same pursed lips for 10 seconds, hold for two seconds, and then just keep doing that and trying to make my inhales and my exhales as long as I possibly could. And the longer that they got, the more that my mind quieted. So that was the technique that was best for me. It's very similar to Andrew Wiles. Uh, technique and and he's been on the show. We actually did an episode at his restaurant, True Foods Kitchen. It was really cool. 
And Incredible especially the pursed lips part is, is a big part of his technique, uh, which has validity. And with yours, what's really interesting is that your uh, carbon dioxide levels go up when you uh, hold the lungs empty or when you breathe out really slowly. And when your CO2 levels go up, cerebral blood flow and oxygenation go up, which is calming for the brain. You know, it's surprising a lot of people aren't familiar with that correlation between the two. And uh, I've, I learned this many years ago using a capnometer where you're actually able to measure the CO2 mix and oxygen mix in the, uh, in the air that you breathe out. It's a little thing that kind of sticks in your nose and samples the air. And it, it's very fascinating that you have this ability to tweak. And I figured out too from doing yoga, I had a really strong stress response where I would breathe until my lungs were empty. And then mm -hmm. immediately it was like, ah, I'm going to die. And you're like, actually... If you measure my blood oxygen, I'm not going to die. I have like two, three minutes here. But right away, I was like, no, you have to breathe right now. And just telling it to calm the F down. Like, okay, now you're just going to learn to sit with the lungs empty and it's going to be all right. It really lowered my overall stress response. If there's some dumb little voice in my head saying, take a breath, you're going to die. Take a breath, you're going to die. You're like, could you just mm. shut up and stop bothering me? And, and so the peace that I got from learning how to just like breathe out and, and like you're saying, I think it was really valuable. And, and there's, uh, in fact, uh, James Nestor is going to come on soon and talk about that. I just wrote the book, Breathe. And um, so your technique of 10 out and then two, okay, you're probably just going, you have to live 12 seconds without inhaling. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that is part of what's bringing you a sense of calmness from it? Do you think that's it? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's it's multifactorial, right? So it goes back to the same way that Apollo and touch and music work, which is that, as I'm breathing in intentionally, again, the intentional breath being the most mm -hmm. critical part, however you decide to breathe, is that as you breathe intentionally, it instantly sends a signal to our brains that says, if I have a, the time right now to pay attention to the feeling of this air coming into my nose and mouth and down into my lungs, I can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. And for example, if you have time to pay attention to how empty your lungs feel, you know that that little voice that's going on in the back of your head can shut up because it's not warranted, right? You're not actually in danger. And that voice is like this vestigial uh, voice that sits there in the back of all of our minds, mm -hmm. um, or maybe in, maybe more in the front by, you know, neurophysiologically, if we're talking about the amygdala. But basically, it's sitting there because we have had trauma. You know, we have had negative things happen to us, and we've been in situations where we feel out of control. So part of why breath is such an interesting technique and, and similarly why we designed Apollo the way we did and pairing breath and Apollo works incredibly well together, especially for people who are learning to deep breathe for the first time. Um, these things help us to restore a sense of control and agency in the present moment by bringing us back to our bodies. Our minds can be anywhere. They could be the past, they could be in the present or the future, but if we're not conscious of where they are, then they're generally in the past or the future. So by focusing on that breath, focusing on the feeling of soothing touch, uh, it instantly brings us back into our bodies, which helps us center us firmly in the present, which is literally the place where we have the most control of what's going on in our lives. That's, uh, that's actually pretty amazing. So that, the side effect of, of that is just being in the present versus the passive future. I hadn't thought of it for breathing, but of course it makes sense. You've also done some interesting work uh, around ketamine. I've also done a ketamine-assisted, I don't know if you could really call it psychotherapy. psychotherapy. I did an episode on it, so I did. Uh, I experienced it and talked about it uh, probably last year sometime. 
My belief- Dr. Cook? Uh, no, actually this was before Dr. Cook started doing it. This was a guy down in San Diego who's actually been on the show and I'm blanking. Oh, is it Dave, David? That sounds like who David Feifel? Yes, thank you. It was David Feifel. Uh, so I, I went down there and said, you know, I'm just going to experience this. Um, of course, there's you know the Burning Man K-hole version of it, which is not really related to what you would do when it's an intramuscular injection. And uh, I would have called it like the the forgiveness drug, probably. And it's mm. like, I was, oh yeah, I, I should let go of that. I should let go of that. So it, it became very easy. Then again, I trained my forgiveness muscles with neurofeedback, so maybe I'm not normal. But what what's really came out to me was we've got the amazing work of MAPS uh, working to bring MDMA on uh, onto the legal stage and psychedelic mushrooms are also coming out. Uh, and I've had uh, Rick Doblin on the show to talk about that and, and many of the other grandfathers of the, the psychedelic movement, uh, Terrence McKenna and people have come on because I really believe in this. However, ketamine is legal everywhere and it's widely available and it seems to do the same damn thing. So why mm -hmm. are we focusing on changing all these laws to get these new things in when we have something that works perfectly well and we have a ton of traumatized people? So you've actually worked with MAPS on phase three trials for MDMA and you do ketamine-related work. Tell me the differences. Like, why are we focusing on MDMA versus ketamine? That's a really great question. Tell me the differences. Like, why are we focusing on MDMA versus ketamine? That's a really great question. And I think it's because these medicines are very powerful in slightly different ways. Um, ketamine is, uh, and, and the work for ketamine was largely pioneered by Dr. Phil Wilson, who has a psychiatry practice in the Bay Area, uh, who I work with, San Francisco Bay Area, a wonderful human being who would actually, you guys would have great conversations, and he has a wealth of knowledge and has worked with Rick Doblin and MAPS for a long time and also helped out with the MDMA protocols for chronic illness, which is very interesting. Um, cool. He's probably seen more patients with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy than anyone else. Um, and so what's interesting about ketamine more than anything is that it was originally developed as a pain medicine to help sedate people who are in acute, very serious pain. And then it was moved into uh, ORs and, and um, used as a horse tranquilizer to gently anesthetize horses. Um, and then also for children in uh, surgical situations, mm -hmm. pregnant women, and in some cases, adults. Um, it was found out over the years that people who experienced ketamine in some ways sort of haphazardly, it was observed that it had a very potent antidepressant effect. Um, the interesting thing about ketamine, unlike MDMA, is that it's extraordinarily dissociative. So yeah. as you were saying, it helped you to train your forgiveness muscles by kind of taking you out of your normal frame. Mm -hmm. Um, other psychedelic medicines have this effect, but Ketamine does it in within like a 60-minute period, and it's extraordinarily safe. Um, and it can be administered via oral, intranasal, through the nose, law, um, injection, or IV. Um, we typically prefer oral or, I, or IM through the muscle. Um, but it's a very interesting medicine because it provides this psychedelic experience, which I think a lot of people... And even in medicine, have trouble describing. And I think what to really get to the bottom of what these medicines have in common is more important than what they have different. Mm. I think what they have in common is that psychedelic is the root word. And psychedelic does not mean crazy 70s dance party. What it actually means is mind manifesting. So what mind manifesting means is 
of making us aware of what is beneath our typical level of awareness or what Freud and Jung called the subconscious. And then we're being able to draw upon the content or the material that's within our subconscious and then manifest it in our conscious waking life. So for example, going back to what you said about forgiveness, one of the things that we forget in our day-to-day lives is the importance of, of skills, which they are skills like forgiveness. Strengthening forgiveness and practicing forgiveness strengthens our neural networks around forgiveness and helps us be better at doing it. Same with gratitude, same with compassion, same with love, believe it or not. And so what these medicines do is they, they take us out of our normal daily what we call the default mode of our lives, which is very egocentric and focused on survival and takes us onto a effectively uh, imagine a mountain where you've just gotten to the top. And instead of having the same tracks that everybody else has taken down the last several days, you would just have eight feet of powder dumped on top of you and go any direction you want. And so what you start to recognize is, hey, maybe I thought forgiveness was stupid before, but now I realize this is actually a skill that I can practice and get better at it. And the more I practice forgiving myself and forgiving others, the better I get at it and the better I feel. And the more I'm able to contribute to myself and my community in terms of growth. And so the psychedelic medicine is unique because it allows us, whether it's MDMA or LSD or psilocybin or ketamine, it allows us to step outside of that default mode and look back at ourselves and really reappraise what it means to be us, right? What do we actually want out of our lives and where do we see ourselves going? So ketamine is interesting because it provides this benefit on a relatively short order with just about an hour of treatment. And now it's so safe that we can actually do it remotely. So in California, as an example, I can mail ketamine to your home and we can do treatments over Zoom, which makes it not only the most legal psychedelic medicine, it's the most accessible psychedelic medicine, which is an incredible tool for, you know, helping treat the trauma that we're all facing at times of COVID, particularly with frontline healthcare providers. And that's a huge focus of Phil's work and, and our work together right now. Um, but MDMA is very useful for other purposes. And in some ways it's more gentle for people who have experienced extreme trauma or who have a ton Mm -hmm. of anxiety around that trauma. So it's not that they're, it's not that it's, you know, they're all equal. They're not, but all of these medicines work in a paradigm that helps teach us how to heal ourselves more effectively rather than becoming dependent on a medicine or a therapy that we take one or multiple times a day every day. You know, yeah. that is really where the paradigm is, di- is different and really future focus. As a therapist, if you could only have one of these drugs, which would it be? LSD, psychedelic mushrooms, MDMA, or ketamine? Mm, that's such a hard question. I probably would go with MDMA uh, if, if to answer your question, but I would say MDMA or ketamine are pretty closely tied. They both have advantages and disadvantages. Um, you know, I think MDMA's disadvantages, the sessions are eight hours long, Yeah. right? So that is an enormous amount of have care to have, time. To and you have to have furry jackets to pet. Otherwise it doesn't <laughs> work. Yeah. 
I mean, the, med- the, the, the treatments are actually delivered in a very similar way. They're both with music, blindfold. Yeah. Um, it's very focused on inter- guiding the client or the, or the subject inward to self-reflect for the majority of the treatment. But eight hours is very taxing for therapists, and, it re- and the treatment protocol by MAPS actually requires two therapists. So you can imagine it's very expensive and it's yeah. very uh, taxing in general but very powerful and people who have had treatment resistant PTSD for over 17 years, you know, five years out over 67% of them are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD. So I think when we really look at that number, um, and we really look at what the results are showing MDMA and ketamine and psilocybin mushrooms, because they're both moving so quickly through trials are the closest thing to a cure we've ever had in mental illness. That is a tremendously hopeful future that we have to look forward to. It is. And it, it's interesting you talk about the amount of time. There's an ROI for every kind of treatment that's spent in your time and your energy and your dollars. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. We get people in some very similar brain states using neurofeedback at, at 40 years of Zen, but mm-hmm. we are going for about 10 hours a day for five days straight. And yes, there are multiple facilitators and there's multiple neuroscientists and there's stuff glued to your head because there's no way to get to those states fast enough and then do the processing afterwards. So you kind of batch it up, but you're like, okay, I'm just going to go in. However, compared to when I did the ketamine uh, therapy, uh, or at least experiment, okay, you get your injection, you lay there, you you do your work, and within 20 minutes after that session, I was on the phone with investors raising a million dollars of funding for my company, (laughs) and I was not tripping balls, okay? Um, so that is really cool. You almost could do it on lunch, certainly a long lunch, um, right. of course, with a therapist and all that. Uh, so that's a huge gift to be able to just do it. But now, have you tried saying, all right, I'm going to combine the vibrations from an Apollo with mm. any of these kinds of therapies? Because it, it seems like the positive touch, the positive vibrations when you're in an open state would be even better. That's, that is... <laughs> That is exactly where we went. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of our our original beta testers started combining these things together and actually told us that they had dramatic effects. Um, and that's what really piqued our interest. Um, we know the power of touch in MDMA sessions is incredible um, and grounding and helpful to the subjects when they're going through difficult experiences. We know that's similar for other psychedelic medicines as well. Um, so we had a good a good hunch that this would be very effective. And we've actually had a number of people um, use this not only for the preparatory phase of helping reduce some anxiety of the onset of medicine, but mm-hmm. also to help them basically restore agency in the middle of the experience when they're feeling out of control. So, you know, we talk a lot about the worry of bad trips and, right. you know, bad trips being a negative experience or an unpleasant experience that's fearful or, or you know, traumatizing when you use a psychedelic medicine, it turns out that if you lean into the experience and you have an environment around you where you feel safe, we can navigate our way out of basically any bad trip. And Apollo is one of the tools that many people have used to help them do this um, and also help with the come down as well that some people experience from things like MDMA. Um, so we're actually working with MAPS now to explore how to combine these treatments effectively Um, And one of the ways is also integration. So integration is this time period after the psychedelic experience where when the drug has worn off, it's up to us to take everything we've learned from this 
mind manifesting experience where we pull from our subconscious into our waking life and then actually practice what we've learned. And so Apollo used in the psychedelic experience and also used after the psychedelic experience has shown early preliminary findings that it's very, very helpful with the integration process and helping us really solidify those new pathways, those new patterns of behavior that help us to continue on our trajectory. You've, I, I'm just, I'm thinking that it makes so much sense. I, I would, uh, I would do that. I have, I haven't really been doing a lot of that kind of work lately uh, with plant medicines and all. Uh, however, I could very much see how, how it would be additive, not subtractive. It wouldn't take you out of the experience that would help you go deeper. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. We talked earlier, at least you mentioned, the biology belief, uh, which is also the title of Bruce Lipton's book. Um, Bruce has been a big inspiration for me. He's been on the show a couple of times. We've become friends. And epigenetics is actually the core of biohacking, the change your environment around you and inside of you so your biology will do what you want. That is just a restatement of epigenetics, to be really clear. Epigenetics just isn't a very cool sounding brand. Sorry, guys. Uh, and you know, biohacking goes beyond just epigenetics, clearly, with you know, cognitive enhancers and nootropics and technologies and all. But you do talk in your work about epigenetic regulation of trauma. Talk to me about some of the more esoteric things people don't know about epigenetics and trauma. So I, I think that epigenetics may be the key to understanding our relationship between our, our genetic code, our DNA, which is the same in every cell in our body and the environment. And sort of that interface between us and the environment may lie on the epigenetic code. And a number of people talk about this and have talked about this over the years. And I think, you know, this was first postulated, I believe, in the early 1900s, actually, which is really fascinating because we didn't even know what DNA was back then. Oh, yeah. Um, But this has been a theory for a very long time. And I think, you know, going to the effects of trauma, there's been an incredible amount of work done by folks like Rachel Yehuda, Mount Sinai, and a number of others who have explored how traumatic events change gene expression patterns over time, not only just in the subject of the trauma, but also in subsequent generations. And so looking at people who have been Holocaust survivors and their descendants and then an offspring and and grandchildren and then looking at people who have survived terrible famine and their children, grandchildren, et cetera, 
And what's really interesting is it's been observed for over 100 years that the children and grandchildren of these people, even though they've been raised in safe and, you know, objectively safe experiences, they have an increased risk of things like PTSD, depression, anxiety disorder, um, metabolic disorder, diabetes to some extent, lots of different things. Um, we see this in in Jewish populations all the time, and we joke around about it, you know, uh, but I think that that trauma is very real. And I think what's interesting is that it's now been shown that there are gene expression changes which occur on the epigenetic level. So for those who don't know, you know, epigenetics means on the DNA, genetics means in the DNA. So genetic code in our bodies, the DNA sequence is the same in basically every cell in our whole body except our sperm and egg cells. And, but, but for some reason, our cells, our skin cells know to be skin and our brain cells know to be brain, right? And then yeah. even subdivided even further. But the reason they do, even though they have all the same code in them, is because the code, there's another la layer of code on the DNA that says, turn up skin cells in the skin, turn down brain proteins in the skin, and in the brain, turn up brain proteins, turn down skin proteins, at a very simple, basic level. And so that also is the same for cortisol genes and cortisol receptor genes and cannabinoid genes and uh, endocannabinoids and cannabinoid receptor genes. And so, for example, if we experience trauma, cortisol can be increased in secretion for a certain amount of time, and the receptor can be desensitized or decreased in secretion or creation of the protein. And then chronic trauma can actually cause the reversal of this, which is interesting. And that was one of the breakthroughs that, uh, that Dr. Yehuda's group found at Mount Sinai through her research. And so why is this interesting? Because these changes get passed on over time, over multiple generations, and it's now been replicated in mice that it, it's up to four generations. I should say not up to, at least four generations of safe breeding after the first generation was traumatized that these genetic changes persist over time. So wow. when we are experiencing trauma or traumatic or symptoms of trauma or anxiety or restlessness or negative intrusive thinking like rumination or, you know, you name it, um, you know, hunger, uh, eating anxiety, right? Thing, all of these different kinds of anxieties that we label in our lives and pathologize with uh, these different names. What we're really talking about is trauma, negative experiences that happen to us that we don't remember or sometimes we remember um, or that happen to ancestors of us that have never actually been resolved and treated. So why is this interesting? It's interesting because a lot of treatments like everything from breath work to meditation to yoga practice through psychedelic experiences, which create the reversal of trauma symptoms, like MDMA is a good example, with just three doses of MDMA, people with 17 years of PTSD, 67% are no longer symptom, uh, meeting symptom criteria for PTSD, and this persists for five years or more after treatment wow. ends. That's with three doses of medicine. So what we're doing is the medicine is teaching people how to heal themselves, and this may actually be shifting their epigenetic code so that when they have children, they don't pass on the legacy of trauma. So we're actually working with MAPS to do a sub-study of their population that's undergoing uh, MDMA treatment for PTSD now in collaboration with uh, Modern Spirit and USC um, wow. and a couple other, and Yale and a couple other groups, um, and then to look at 
what is actually happening on the epigenetic level before and after people go through these treatments? And can we track those changes over time to really show in the long term, you know, what is the role of the medicine in these in changing epigenetic code? And what is the role of the set and setting or the belief that you can heal? That's a beautiful thing. In the anti-aging work that I've done, I, I oftentimes say, look, one of the easiest things you can do to live a long time is just have a really healthy grandmother. <laughs> and you know, it, it really does pass down, and the science is very clear. I suspect the real number is probably seven, not four, because that just goes back to the you know, indigenous people's you know, seventh generation. Uh, and any act you do, you take into account what it'll do for seven generations. So you don't throw the plastic in the ocean because it's probably going to be still there in seven generations. So that's a bad idea. And, you know, you, you, I'm kind of simplifying there, but but there you go. It's it's also bringing up some thoughts from the interview with Stephen Porges that I did. Stephen is the father of polyvagal theory and one of the living experts, one of our elders who studied the autonomic response and the vagal nerve in the body. And he mentions that when he does his sound-assisted, again, there's some vibration in there, uh, kind of like the Apollo, just that same set, it matters, um, interventions on large groups of people. He'll go to a conference, he'll have you know, 25 therapists in the room, and he'll play certain sounds that make people release trauma, and they have profound effects. And he can do it all over North America, and it generally works, and a few people have unbelievable you know, crying, twitching, just crazy responses you would never even expect from playing certain sounds. <laughs> and he took it to London. And after three minutes, they had to turn off the sounds because the entire room melted down. And in the interview, um, he says, Dave, I truly believe that pretty much everyone in London either went through World War II. So they were living, you know, in bomb shelters and constant fear of dying and lack of food and all the things that happened. Or they're immigrants and people who immigrate usually are immigrating because they were hunted in their homeland or they had no food. Mm. Things were so horrible. They had to give up their people and their land and come to another place to create a new start, which creates trauma. He's like, so this is a city and probably a country where the trauma levels are so high and it's still sitting in there epigenetically. And th that conversation stuck with me just because of what you're saying. So if we could dose everyone with MDMA three times, maybe the next generation will be healthier. Is that is that true? I would say that if we can help people cope with their trauma in whatever way is safe for them to do so, then yes, we will we will potentially dramatically shift the outcome of the entire human race. I mean, this is really treat, but 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 focusing on the fact that we all have had trauma. Right. Like, as you said, everyone in that room responded because we all have had some degree of negative experience in our lives where these sounds and these stimuli from the environment resonate with us. So if we ignore the, those experiences and we sweep them under the rug all the time over and over again, we're literally doomed to repeat the same thing for ourselves and for our children. And when we embrace those experiences as experiences that challenged us to help us grow and become better, stronger, faster versions of ourselves, which is a very much the biohacking ethos of, you know, restoring ourselves to that with which Mother Nature intended us to be or even better, right? Then we actually open up and unlock the doors to our full potential. Right now, we are literally trapping ourselves in that box of fear. 
I'm still processing just the, how stunned I am over your artful dodging of my attempt to put words in your mouth on that last <laughs> question. So thank you for your, your elegant dance. Have you considered a career in politics? <laughs> I have not, but <laughs> good. Don't medicine, do that. You have, you have more important work teaches to do. Us, um, you know, we have to be careful as as physicians because you know MDMA and psychedelics are very powerful, but they're not for everyone. Exactly. You know? I was hoping you would say there. It's not for everyone, <laughs> and this is not a call to go out and do it, especially when you don't know what you're getting at a party setting. I think it's irresponsible, even though it's fun uh, to do that, uh, because they're not without risk and they're not without spiritual risk, which is very hard to define and measure scientifically. I just trust the people who see weird things that I don't see because I know enough of them who see the same things that there's some commonalities there. Now, one more question for you, Dave. What do you think the epigenetic impact of the fear of COVID is going to be on our species? I'm talking about the cumulative, okay, we're all worried about it right now, whether we've had it or we haven't, as well as the lack of hugs and the social isolation and all that. So I think that, you know, it's very similar to what we were just talking about where, you know, we are being taught to fear human interaction to some extent, yeah. which is very sad and uh, very unfortunate because it is human interaction with something that many of us were already starved of, um, particularly non-sexual, intimate interactions with other human beings. Um, we are not even taught as children, especially in the U.S., how to have non-sexual intimate interactions with other human beings. But you can do that. <laughs> go to go to Brazil. <laughs> go to it, go to Italy, right? Go to these places where men kiss each other on the cheek or they hug, right? Regularly. They hold men hold hands in these countries. You know, this is not unusual. It's not stigmatized or strange. Um, men and women will kiss each other or hug each other freely because they know that it feels good and that it conveys safety of human interaction between one to another. So when we think about the trauma of separation, right, that it's like the trauma of being separated from our mothers at birth. You know, it's this idea that we are losing touch with ourselves and with each other because we're losing that it, one of the most incredibly important ways that we boost healing neurotransmitters in our body like oxytocin, right? Like dopamine, like serotonin, all of these things increase in our bodies. And that's just to name a few when we are experiencing loving, soothing, gentle touch from another human being. So, you know, what is going to be the impact of that? I, I can say hopefully Hopefully that if we keep in mind how important soothing touch is, that we will put, persevere through this and we will, you know, do what we need to do to protect ourselves and our loved ones and our communities. And hopefully we will get to a point where we no longer have to fear human interaction. But again, looking at the way things are going, this might take some time. Um, it's in, and taking time to heal and being patient with that time to heal is important because, not everyone is going to be ready to jump back into being close with other people when there's been a threat of, of a, you know, illness that could be life threatening, um, right on the around the corner for all of us. So, but it's important to be aware of this. It's it's one thing to kind of, you know, let it happen unbeknownst to us, but to be aware of what we're missing. And there was a great article about um, about touch and is specifically published in I think it was Wired uh, a yeah. couple months ago. 
And, you know, touch hunger uh, or, or touch starvation is really important. You know, we need to remember the importance of touch in our lives because touch is the single most powerful way that we convey safety to one another. And it's not unique to us. It's literally hardwired in our nervous system all the way back to the ancient monkeys and many other ancient animals. There's something evil uh, about the idea that, okay, if touch is how you convey safety, and now we are going to associate touch with, oh no, you might die, even though the virus appears to be spread by aerosol droplets, not by touch. So touch mm-hmm. could do it, but now we've replaced the feeling of, ah, oh, with the feeling of, oh no, I might die. And I think it's all, I, I don't think the whole virus is bullshit, the virus is real, but I think that that response, that neurological training of people to fear touch is incredibly evil. Uh, and it's it's a bad thing, and I'm all about the hugs. And yeah. you look at that first do no harm and relative risk, I think we might be killing more people with that fear training over the next four generations than are going to die from the virus. And maybe I'm out there for that, but you've got to take all of that into account. And I just don't believe that the the health professionals who are looking at the virus are taking into account the systemic effect of recommendations on shortening people's lives because they have no food or because they have no touch. <laughs> and those seem really important in the overall equation. Uh, yeah. What could we do yeah, about we, that? <laughs> I mean, we really, you're, you're right in the way that we really are looking at it in um, a very siloed approach, which is problematic. And we're not taking into account the mental health aspects of what happens to us when we are touch deprived or when we are deprived from, you know, again, that intimacy with one another, of being able to sit face to face and have meaningful conversations where we feel that sense of safety that someone else is truly caring about us and listening to us and you feel their energy, you know, like we can do this over Skype like we're doing right now, mm-hmm. but it's not quite the same. And, you know, I, I think that you're right in that we need to take a holistic approach to mental and physical health and emotional health because they're not independent. They're yes. not in a vacuum, right? And so I don't necessarily have an answer of what we should do, but I think that we all as physicians and care providers and as the and 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 not just physicians and care providers, but also the leaders of our country need to sit down and establish, you know, what is the most critical factors here that we need to focus on and how do we make sure that we minimize the damage that could be done as a result of prolonged physical distancing. You know, it's not, it's, it's not that it's not benign, right? It's not without potential risk that we distance ourselves from other people, as you said. So making sure that we test frequently as one example, it's very difficult. Every other country, many, or I shouldn't say every, but many other first world countries are providing frequent testing for people and you don't have to have symptoms to get tested. But in the U.S., it's extremely difficult to get tested. Um, it's extremely difficult in a lot of places to get protective equipment and or to get education about how to use protective equipment properly. So having adequate protective equipment, having adequate testing resources are just one way that we can make sure that we feel safe around our, our loved ones and the people who can help us solve some of those mental health problems. That said, there is also something that we don't teach about that is important called self-touch right? It's <laughs> not, you know, I'm petting so, my arm right now. So, so that's, you know, touching ourselves nicely is one way to do it in, in terms of the arm petting, but 
there are pressure points on the wrist, as you mentioned earlier, on the legs, on the ankle, on the chest. If you put your hands on your chest and push inward on your chest, you increase pressure in the chest, Mm -hmm. which actually increases parasympathetic tone. We also have, I'll take my headphones off for a minute, a little place in the inside of the ear that some people are starting to look at. It's the inside of the outside of the ear. And when you press your finger on that point, it's called a vagal afferent terminal. So the vagus nerve actually comes to the skin right in that spot. And if you massage that part of the ear, you can rapidly induce a sense of calm and relaxation. Um, the chest pressure is another way to do it. There's certain spots of the neck that you can do a gentle massage. Um, shiatsu massage. Teaches, tapping. Uh, tapping is a yeah. great one, right? So there's lots of things that we can do to help stave off some of the the sequelae of mental uh, of the mental illness and emotional issues that come from being touch deprived. That said, I think we all, we really do need to focus on ways that we can bring ourselves closer together at a time where it does feel like we're being driven apart. Well, thank you for for putting those suggestions out there. I've actually run a current using you know electricity to stimulate the vagal nerve uh, as well in that same point. But all of those things for people, especially who are by themselves, largely it, it's it's pretty miserable. We use uh, we use that sort of a thing uh, in prisons to torture people. Uh, really, <laughs> you yeah. know, we're going to put you in solitary confinement. And and so if that stress is there, if those techniques are going to help, I'm assuming vibration over those things with the Apollo is is likely to also stimulate those same responses. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a big. So uh, the the seeing the lack of t- of therapeutic and soothing touch that my patients had in their lives was a big reason for why we developed Apollo and why we focused on touch because again, evolutionarily, touch is so important for safety and for helping us feel safe and comfortable and able to turn on our recovery nervous system. And so Apollo from our clinical trials is showing that we can reliably use this tool to help boost a sense of uh, or boost the recovery nervous system, which correlates with improved attention control, improved calm, improved heart rate variability, and all of the things that correlate with resilience and recovery, which are very similar to what you get from a loved one touching you. It's not a replacement, but it is something that can help in difficult times, or you know, at least for us, we use it all the time, but um, particularly at times like this where we're more touch-deprived, it's an incredibly helpful tool. How many times a day, or when do you normally use it? I, I admit, um, a friend gave me uh, one of those, like, Dave, you have to try the Apollo. Uh, and this is our friend uh, from Thrive, uh, the probiotic company, uh, justthrive.com. Thank you for that, by the way. Now, and so I, I tried it out, but I didn't really follow whatever instructions. I was like, okay, this thing has efficacy, at least I can feel it. So what's the recipe? Like, do I do it in the morning? Do I do it at night? Do I do it 10 times a day? What's, uh, I, I don't walk me through it. Sure. So we, we actually provide a sample schedule um, that I can share with you now that we've learned from our clinical trials and from our thousands of users in the wild of sort of what schedules tend to work the best for most people. Um, and the, the app is, is pretty clearly laid out based on the seven goal states that most people have in their day-to-day lives. So it goes from most energizing at the top left, which is energy and wake up, to then social and open, and then clear and focused, and then rebuild and recover, which is sort of in the middle. And then down from there is in the more much more parasympathetically calm-boosting um, fre- uh, frequency modes, which are uh, meditation and mindfulness, um, which is sort of like a calm flow state. 
And then from there down to relax and unwind, which is really great before bed to help people rapidly wind down when you're stressed out to fall asleep more quickly. And then sleep and renew, which people use in bed to help, as we said earlier, um, improve time to fall asleep and improve deep sleep and REM sleep and decrease uh, resting heart rate. So I think, you know, what we recommend is integrating the, the nice thing about Apollo is it can be used in conjunction with whatever else you're normally doing. It doesn't take time away from whatever else you're doing. Um, meditation and breath work are fantastic, but when we're learning them, we have to take time out from our normal day to, to learn and practice the techniques. In a, in a situation of life like we're in right now where most of us are you know, high-performing, working all the time to try to put food on the table and make as much of a contribution to the world as we can in a positive way, we are stressed out. We don't want to take time out to do something else and fit it into the schedule. So part of the idea with Apollo was, can we give you something that you can use as an adjunct or in addition to whatever else you're doing that doesn't take you away? It helps keep you in the moment, keep you in flow. And so we recommend that people wear it all day. I wear it all day. Um, and then I basically give myself a 15 to 30 minute burst of whatever frequency mode I would like okay. for whatever goal I have. Um, sometimes at night I'll use an hour for sleep, but I generally don't have many issues falling asleep. Um, it's more for me. I, I'm one of those, I used to be an, uh, an ADHD kid who was never medicated. Um, so I had to learn to train my attention, which is always a challenge when I'm doing things that, that are boring or frustrating. So I use it for that in particular. I use it for public speaking. I use it to, you know, warm myself up before exercise and then to calm down quickly after exercise. So really it's about using it to help augment whatever your, it is that you're doing in your life to help you get the most out of yourself. And then it trains you over time. The more you use it, it trains your body to be in a state of peak performance and peak recovery whenever you want to be. And then we get better at doing it on our own. Have you ever thought of making like an anger and distrust mode for when people want to be really good at trolling online? I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Are people not good enough at that, Dave? That's a fair point. We don't need to amplify that. Uh, I always just, I, I actually yeah. turn it on when I have to respond to somebody who's trolling online. I will turn that thing on and I that will bring me into a whole other state because I'll write up a response that's sometimes, you know, a little bit aggressive and I'll be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not gonna make this better. Let's pull it back. All right, take a deep breath. All right, let's go in with compassion here. <laughs> you know, there there's a lot to be said for the compassion state. If you can dial that up, that's that's good. I still tend to go in with a victory state with, with trolls. It, I, I just do this math and I'm like, it took you five minutes to say that I'm a bad person and that I look like poop and whatever other <laughs> strange things that you have made up. And it's going to take me exactly half a second to ban you. So you'll never be <laughs> disturbed by my work again uh, and to delete your comments. So the other people won't be destroyed by your trauma being manifested in words. You should see a therapist about what happened to you in seventh grade. But instead of doing that, I'm like half a second, boom. Uh, and you're done. And then they just don't bother your people anymore. And so I feel like like really good about keeping the community clean. And so I stopped responding to trolls. But people who have questions or who disagree, those are the ones where I don't feel triggered by those. And, and it's more just about, hey, like let's talk about it. And then it's just interesting. Uh, and right. so I imagine you're the same way. But if you're feeling triggered by it, you're like, don't waste my time. Boom. Yeah. Uh, and, and for me, that's been really liberating because they always lose. They spend more time uh, and if there's no validity there and frankly even if some of what they're, they're they have a question buried in 10 layers of insults you're like why like why do i want other people to be exposed to that because then they feel bad too uh, so keep it clean yep yep okay well 
apolloneuro.com slash Dave Asprey is where people can get 15% off. And guys, you listen to the show, you know that I, I get inundated. People send me like buckets of toys and every book ever printed, I think about health ends up in my hands. And very, very few of them make the bar to be worth putting on the show. So if there's something you can do that stacks on top of what you're already doing that amplifies your performance or amplifies your ability to do what you're doing so you can do more of the things you, do, you want to do in less time. And the, the doing more doesn't mean doing more work, although you could do it for that. But what I mean by doing more is you want to do more meditation in less time. You want to do more healing in less time, more relaxation or you know more performance, like you said, show up on stage, whatever. From all of that, I think this totally uh, meets and exceeds the bar. You've got the clinical study, you've got your credentials, you've done your work with psychedelics and all of that. So this is just worth your attention in the world of biohacking. ApolloNeuro.com slash Dave Asprey to save a few bucks on it. I actually don't know how much it is, but I know that we're saving you 15%. How much is it? It's 349 349 So about the cost of uh, one or two hours of therapy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to put it in, in perspective. Uh, and I actually do use it. I don't use it every night, full disclosure. Uh, but I, it's usually because I forgot to charge it. And I think it's, uh, I think it's worthy. Uh, and uh, Dave, thank you thank for you. for your work in the world. Supporting maps is a uh, is is risky from a medical perspective, uh, because there's still people out there who say, "How dare you think about using substances to make the human better?" Because only some substances can be thought about. So being willing to challenge that and do the clinical science-backed data stuff says here's who should use what when um that is an act of heroism i believe and so thank you for doing that and just for paying attention to trauma and epigenetics and all the hard stuff and then doing something meaningful about it so i appreciate you well you're very welcome and i appreciate you too thank you so much for having me you got it you like today's episode you know what to do head on over to itunes and leave a review or youtube or whatever else and if you're so inclined and you're in a position to do it, I highly recommend try this, apolloneuro.com slash Dave Asprey, and see what happens. And what I think you're going to find is if you're monitoring your nervous system, monitoring your sleep, using any of the kind of tech that I've talked about on the show, or maybe even some of the stuff I've helped to create, you'll see <laughs> there's real validity to this vibration affects the body, the nervous system, the mind. Uh, and I, I am really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Just hit me up on Instagram and tell me what you experienced. I might even put some of your comments in my story. So thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.